Over the years, one of the things I've enjoyed kind of collecting are dumb criminal stories. Have you seen some of these or heard some of these? Matter of fact, a book came out a few years ago that uh, uh, dealt with dumb criminal stories. It had over 100 stories about criminals who uh, tried to pull off something and it didn't quite work out. I've collected some of these. There's also been a, a, a television show called America's Dumbest Criminals. I think it had like three seasons and can be watched and streaming. And uh, one of the stories that I picked up years ago was from a guy named Nathan Wayne Pugh who robbed a bank in Dallas. And while he was robbing the bank and demanding bags of money, one of the tellers said, well, I have to have you sign for it here in two different forms. <laughs> and he actually signed his name. That's how we, we know his full name. And the police caught up with him quite quickly. Then there's the guy who robbed a restaurant in a small town back east several years ago. And as he was in the back of the restaurant, in the back part, he entered from the outside. And it was a storage area. It was dark. The police came in, but they didn't know how they would find him. And one of the, the detectives that was there, a man named Tim Dorr, uh, thought it just sort of be funny to yell out in the dark with this guy hiding in there, Marco. And guess what? The guy responded, Polo, and they found him. In uh, 2009, in the state of Iowa, two 19-year-olds robbed a bank, and um, instead of wearing ski masks or something else to disguise themselves, they decided to make their masks out of permanent marker. So they put it on their faces. The problem was, when the bulletin went out of who they were looking for that had robbed the bank, uh, the permanent marker was still on their faces. They looked this way when they were picked up the next day as family members <laughs> turned them in. <laughs> now... There's a certain level of silliness to that. We know there was a serious side as people were frightened by these criminals who turned out to be dumb criminals. There is a seriousness, of course, that comes with any crime. The scriptures say to us as the followers of Jesus, it's not just about the crimes or the things other people do, but we need to take sin seriously in our own lives. Today we're gonna to continue in our study of the life of David. David lived 3,000 years ago. He reigned and lived. He was the greatest king of Israel. He accomplished so much for God. He's described as a man after God's own heart. And yet God doesn't spare us from seeing his failures as well. And today we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And we're going to talk about taking sin seriously. If you remember in 2 Samuel 11 preached a message in the uh, Cautionary Tales series in the spring. We looked at the lust of David and his sin against Bathsheba as he uh, slept with her and overpowered her because of his position. And she became pregnant to try to cover that up. He ends up ultimately killing her husband, Uriah. And um, David just gets himself into such a mess. Now, if you remember that message, we looked at his confession in Psalm 51 and you can go back and pick that up. I think we made that available on our social media if you want to look at chapter 11. We covered that quite heavily back then, and we touched on chapter 12. But today, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we talk about taking sin seriously. Now, when we say the word sin, there are two of the, the, two of the biggest concepts for sin in the Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, are in two words. One is the word sin, 
which literally means to miss the mark. So God is the standard in terms of his morality and holiness. And Romans chapter three says, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of who he is. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, because we miss the mark. It's like an arrow aiming at a target. We miss the mark of who God is. That's one way God describes sin. Another word is the word trespass. And that's the idea that God has established boundaries for us. We think about issues like lust and greed and pride. There are, there are the right ways to handle human sexuality. There are the right things to handle the materials and the resources and the finances God gives us. There's a right way to handle success and our lives and how we view ourselves, but then there is a wrong way. And God lays out in his word, the scriptures, his boundaries for us. And when we cross those boundaries, we trespass. And we violate again God's standard, God's holiness. So sin can be missing the mark is one illustration in the word that's used for sin in the Bible. Another word is this idea of trespassing sin where we cross a boundary that God has established in his word. A lot of people, when they deal with sin in their own lives, they, they respond in one of two extremes. The first extreme is, that, well, everything's over, I've just blown it so bad, everything's over, I'll never recover, I can never forgive myself, my family and friends can't forgive me, God can never forgive me, it's just over, and it's just a throw-in-the-towel mentality to sin. That's not taking sin seriously, actually. It's not seeing sin and grace as God sees it. But there's another extreme I've heard in my office over years as a pastor when people come to me in brokenness and because of sin in their lives, I'll I'll hear, not the throw in the towel, but the, what's the big deal? I mean, I I really do love my wife. This was just an emotional relationship for a few years, or or, I was only with that person once intimately, and I really still love my husband, and and you hear these, it's no big deal. That's a dangerous thing. That is not taking sin seriously in our lives. But in David's life, we get this example of this just, awful sin he commits against Bathsheba and Uriah, and then he tries to cover it up, and he goes months, when she becomes pregnant, he goes months thinking, okay, Uriah's gone, they think this child is mine, we were married when when this child was conceived, Bathsheba and I, and and, and so uh, I got away with it, but he doesn't. He's confronted by a prophet that God sends his way in chapter 12. Today, as we talk about taking sin seriously, We need to understand this. In a culture constantly redefining good and bad, we as the followers of Christ must take sin seriously. Our world is redefining good and bad, saying where the boundaries are and mocking where God put boundaries. But we as the followers of Christ need to take sin seriously in our lives. As we take sin seriously, the very sins in our own lives Others see Christ in us more and more. We, we often talk about how trials and struggles and difficulties and problems in life are like a fire that God brings into our lives that purifies us and, and refines us and makes us more like Jesus, and that's true. But he also takes our mistakes, our failures, and our sins to purify us and to refine us and to make us more like Jesus. A.W. Tozer said, the person who does not take sin seriously does not take God seriously. If you want to have a serious relationship with God, if you want to walk with God and represent him well in the world today, you need to take sin seriously. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is probably six or seven months after this child is conceived in David's sin. 
thinks he's gotten away from it. Nobody's going to know. And we read in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I'm reading from a digital version of the Bible here on my iPad. Whether you have the Bible on your mobile device or a hard copy, follow along. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. And I think Nathan tells a story that God gives him that echoes in the heart of David, who is the king, yes, of Israel, but he started out as a poor shepherd boy from a, 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 just a small little town from a poor family caring for sheep. And I think God knows there was a story in David's childhood where something like this happened to him, and he tells this story to capture David's heart and sense of justice. So this is the story that Nathan tells that God gives him. He says this to David, there were two men in a certain town, one was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock, or heard, he took the poor man's one little lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Now, David flashes back to those years on the hillside watching the sheep, and maybe he had one little sheep he'd bought with all of his resources and somebody stole it at one point. But look at David's response. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. David is upset. This is wrong. This is morally wrong. It is an injustice. This, this is terrible. Verse seven, then, David said, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Nathan goes on to explain, the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel, saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that was not, had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord? Why have you trespassed and committed this egregious sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah, taking Uriah's life, and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. Notice as Nathan speaks and often as the narrator speaks in the early part of the story, Bathsheba is called Uriah's wife to David so he knows what he's done, not Bathsheba. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says, because of what you've done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. There's gonna be violence and his children at this time would have been their teen years and early 20s. They're gonna see a pattern of hypocrisy that's shown up now in his, his life, and their lives will be distracted from living with the standards of the Lord and according to God's will. And, and we'll see in the next couple of weeks, chaos ensues within his family because of his sin. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it in secret, but I will make this thing happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Then David, in response to this confrontation where Nathan says, you are the man, he says, it says, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. What he did to Bathsheba, what he did to Uriah, both under the law in which 
was in effect and Israel was living under, and even as king he had to live under, both were punishable by death but God's gonna extend grace to him and that he won't die. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord. Notice, contempt, utter contempt for the word of the Lord. By doing this, your child will die. Now, let me just mention here that you gotta be careful to, in your own life, attach a loved one, a child, a, a parent, a spouse, someone's death to your sin. God is dealing with David, the leader of his people, and this is a very different and unique situation that's going on here. Be careful to associate deaths and say, oh, because of this, this happened. Because we don't know this side of eternity how God is working his sovereignty, but this is clearly, God wants him to know this is what's gonna happen. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife, again, Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. He's humble, he's mourning, he's begging God to spare the child's life. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. Now that's unique in, in Jewish custom and culture. Remember, Jesus was named by his parents on the eighth day circumcised on the eighth day. That was the day in which you took on identity. This child dies uh, prior to when there would be a celebration. Because of infant mortality issues, they would wait this period to make sure the child was gonna actually survive. The child died on the seventh day. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. They said, what drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? Then David saw them whispering. When David saw them, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. As he confesses his sin, repents, he returns to the Lord, immediately worshiping the Lord, putting his focus on his God. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, David, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat, but now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. What's up? David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again to me? I can't. But here we see the value of a child's life and also the reality that children... Uh, in this innocence, step into eternity, and David believes he's in the place he's gonna go. He says, I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. Notice now it's Bathsheba, as the narrator says it. Because now David has confessed that sin, and things are changing as God's grace is beginning to enter his life. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon, which speaks of peace, the Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedediah. Solomon, Jedediah, we know him as Solomon. Maybe Jedediah was kind of a name like it would be today. Maybe not considered you know, the brightest bulb in the box if his name was Jedediah. And he, but he, uh, he, his name meant beloved of the Lord. So in their own home, they're gonna, they're gonna focus on him being the one who is beloved by the Lord as the Lord had commanded. That when Bathsheba called out to her son, she probably called out to Jedediah. It was an intimate name that was shared because it meant beloved of the Lord, this beautiful, beautiful name. 
So what do we gain from this story of how David's sin is confronted and how he deals with it and the consequences of that sin? Well, again, we gotta take sin seriously. Let me share with you briefly these 10 things that help us take sin seriously. Number one, no one is above temptation. No one is above temptation. No matter who you are or how you've lived, you can fall to temptation. You go back to chapter 11, the first four or five verses, you get David, when he should have been off with the soldiers at war, peering down from the palace roof that would have been above all the other roofs in ancient Jerusalem, and he sees this woman bathing, and he lusts after her, has her brought to him, forces himself upon her, uses his position and power. She gets pregnant, sends word to him, those first few verses of chapter 11, tries to convince her husband as he comes back from battle, has him brought back to spend a couple nights with his wife and maybe people would believe it was, and he would even believe that was his child. But he has too much integrity, Uriah does, to do that. David finally sends to Joab a note and says, hey, Joab, you're the general of the armies as they're fighting. Take this soldier, Uriah, and put him out on the front lines and then withdraw so the enemy will kill him. David, now remember last week we talked about how kind he was with Mephibosheth. He, he, this is David, the man after God's own heart. This is David who's united all the tribes, who established Jerusalem as this shining city on the hill to point to the one true God, Jehovah God. David who wanted the center of worship to be there so people would know the God of Israel is the one true God. No one is above temptation. It's interesting to me that David is furious when he hears the story of what someone else did. A lot of pastors from platforms like this, a lot of politicians, a lot of public figures who espouse biblical values and Judeo-Christian ethics, and, and we might say, yeah, that, you know, that person is championing that cause, that person is standing for these things. And then we find out that they were caught up in the very same things they were preaching against or fighting against or dealing with in, in public leadership. No one is above temptation. It's very easy, like David did, to condemn other people. You know what our world needs more than people who just espouse the values and fight culturally or from platforms preach it? We need followers of Christ who, who don't just take sin seriously in the lives of other people. We take sin seriously in our lives and understand that we're all vulnerable to temptation, that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that, that lust, greed, and pride could creep into the hearts of any of us. And sometimes when we're in an elevated position, supposedly even standing for morality and virtue, that we ourselves are susceptible. No matter who you are or how you've lied, you can fall to temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you're here this morning and saying, oh, taking sin seriously, this message is for somebody else. Oh, be careful. Oh, well, I've been a Christian for so long, or I know all these Bible verses, or I teach on these subjects, or I fight for these things in our culture. Oh, be careful. No one is above temptation. That's one of the main messages God wants us to get from the story of David. Secondly, sin often produces more sin. Sin often produces more sin. When we sin, when we miss the mark, we step across the boundary God has put into our lives, in our relationships, and how we deal with the things of this world, we, how we deal with who we are and how we view ourselves. When we sin, we get lustful and greedy 
and arrogant, we cross that line or miss the mark, what happens is it often doesn't stop with the one sin, it becomes another sin and another sin. One sin not dealt with properly can lead to another and yet another. David has to cover up his sin with Bathsheba by killing her husband, but not only that, then Joab says, hmm, he wants me to put Uriah out there and abandon him so he dies. I've got a few people I don't like, soldiers. I'm gonna put them out there. There are four or five people that are put out there with Uriah that they withdraw from so that they will be, I'm hearing them, I hear it, yeah. It doesn't say the roof is gonna collapse, does it? Flash flood? Is it flashing in Westlake Village? 94, or 5495 Via Rocus? It doesn't have that ring. Be wise, be cautious. Um, now my watch is vibrating with the same thing. But, but hear me on this. One sin led to another sin that led to somebody else sinning. You can read that in verses 14 and 15 of 2 Samuel 11. Sin often produces more sin. It's best to deal with it now before the sin produces more sin. Thirdly, there is no such thing as a hidden sin. There is, what's that? Yeah, I'm fine. There's, I don't see any water yet. Um, <laughs> there is no such thing as hidden sin. It's probably what a bunch of people said to Noah one day. I don't see any water yet. <laughs> there is no such thing as hidden sin. What you do online, texting that person you're not married to, the engagement you have that you think nobody knows about, there is no such thing as hidden sin. God knows our sins even if no one else does. Verse one of chapter 12, so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. Nathan is probably thinking, are you right, God? Are you sure this is David? Go tell him this story. God knows. Proverbs 28, 13 says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. In Psalm 90, this is a psalm by Moses, actually. He says, you, Lord, spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, you see them all. Now, please understand me here. God doesn't tell us that, so we see him as this giant God with a big club that's ready just, we cross that boundary, we miss that mark, it's just gonna hammer us. No, he is God. And a healthy respect and fear of God means we understand he is always present equally everywhere at all times. He knows all things all the time. And we cannot hide from God. And there's something else. There's this power people get, especially people who, who are public figures. This is what, what you often hear when they're, they're, they're interviewed and they, they are, are raw and open about what they got into and that hidden sin. It's what John Stott said, hidden sin intensifies the power of the sin, exposing sin saps it of its strength. There's something powerful, something enticing, something fulfilling about, I got away with it, so I'll get away with it again, I'll get away with it again, I'll get away with it again. You never get away with it. God knows. Fourthly, God defines what sin is. God defines what sin is. People will say to me, do you think this and this is sin even though the culture's saying? I say, yeah, because God says it's sin. Well, that's just your opinion. No, 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 no. Open God's word. You have to do some real mental gymnastics with the scriptures to redefine some of the sins our culture has redefined. 
God says what sin is. No matter what we think, no matter what Sean thinks or you think or educators think or philosophers think or, or, or ministers think, what God says is sin is sin. In verse 9 and verse 12, something had jumped out at me in my study of this passage this week. Just, just I, don't, I don't remember seeing before. We read in verse 9, why then have you despised the word of the Lord? despise the word of the Lord? In verse 12, it says, um, you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord. You see, you're violating what you know God's word says. God's word gives us God's definition of sin. 2 Corinthians 7, or excuse me, that's coming up. Um, God defines what sin is. Not Sean, not you, not voices in the culture. I was saddened this week. You know, we've, people are using chat GPT for a number of things, but I saw something very sad in how chat GPT was used. Maybe you saw this report, but the scriptures are clear that God made us sexual beings, that God designed sexual intimacy to be meaningful and satisfying between a man and a woman within the commitment and love of marriage. And anything other than that is, is outside of God's standard for how we should live and how we should express ourselves and experience human sexuality. And um, I saw this week somebody had put into chat GPT, you know, no, um, create a new part of the Gospels where Jesus is saying all these other versions of sexual morality are okay. And so ChatGPT created these verses in a first century setting, and it's the words of Jesus, and it, it totally redefines sin. And then I saw people posting, thank you. I know that's what Jesus really thinks. It's good to see those words from Jesus and to see them included in the gospel now. You can't do that. Now, that doesn't mean God, when we step outside of God's boundaries, God loves us. And people who struggle with, with sexual lust and people who practice things that are outside of God's plan in terms of that or how we use things and resources, greed, and how we, use, how we view ourselves in terms of pride and arrogance, God loves everyone and is willing to work with everyone and see them as they come to Jesus grow and change. But you can't redefine what sin is. God says what sin is. Fifthly, sin requires repentance, not just regret. Sin requires repentance, not just regret. Confessing, grieving over, and turning away from sin brings deep change and fresh hope. Most of us as parents remember, you know, when a child would get caught doing something, and they really weren't repentant, they just regretted they got caught. And a lot of us handle our sin when we, we do sin, we just sort of a apologize to God, God, I'm sorry I got caught in that relationship. I'm sorry I got caught looking at those things. I'm sorry I, I got caught by some people using those words. I, I got this is not just about regretting we get caught or regretting we did something. Repentance is, is the idea of turning around. And, and that's what David does here. He grieves over, he turns away from his sin and it brings deep change and fresh hope into his life. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 again, look there, verse seven. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
And then he talks about the consequences. And David's first response to you are the man is not, well, that woman shouldn't have been bathing out there. It's her fault. Well, if Uriah would have just gotten a little more drunk, I wouldn't have been in this situation and they would have thought it was his kid. And you know, it's a pressure being king. I mean, it's really hard and I, I just, no. Look at David's response in verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, the first words he speaks after Nathan says, you are the man, I have sinned against the Lord, period. Period. You have to confess the sin, turn from the sin mentally, emotionally, volitionally, volitionally turn from the sin and choose to walk again with your Savior, to walk with God. And notice that when David gets up and, and he's gone through the mourning of the child, he goes back to God in his repentance. He said, I did it. It was wrong. I grieve over what it has done and I return again to pursuing my relationship with my God. That brings deep change and fresh hope. Second Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow brings repentance, leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You want real life? Repent of the sin in your life. You want a Mickey Mouse around and experience dissatisfaction, frustration, and just a feeling of death and emptiness? Keep playing around with that sin and just regret getting caught. Sin requires repentance, not just regret. David repents. Sixth, sin offers, often hurts those we love the most. Through our sin, its consequences, we often hurt the very people we never wanted to hurt. Nathan says to him in 2 Samuel 12, 9 and 10, the sword is gonna be a part of your home. There's gonna be death and chaos here. Your own children are gonna rebel. They're gonna see these patterns in your life. They're gonna see that hypocrisy and it's gonna hurt the people you love the most. I've sat as a pastor, unfortunately, with people saying, I never wanted to hurt my wife. I never wanted to hurt my husband. I never wanted my kids to feel this. I never, never wanted my business partners to experience this kind of cheating on them or this lack of ethics. I never wanted that pride to go so far that it hurt the, peop hurt the people I cared about the most. Sin often hurts those we love the most. That ought to drive us to repentance. Seventh, the consequences of sin can last more than a lifetime. While divine forgiveness comes immediately, the effects of sin can be felt for generations. We read in verse 18 how the child died. We read again in verses uh, nine and 10 how his own children are gonna see these terrible patterns and God's gonna allow them to move into rebellion and we'll see over the next couple of weeks the kind of chaos that comes within years and decades because of David's sin. The consequences of sin can often last beyond our lifetime. That doesn't mean God hasn't forgiven us. It doesn't mean God won't walk with us afresh. It just means that in the forgiveness, the knots and consequences of sin continue. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Don't kid yourself. Sin has consequences that often go beyond our lifetime. If you want to take sin seriously, number eight, know this, God graciously walks forward with us after our sin. God graciously walks forward with us after our sin. While sin has consequences, God never gives up on us and he desires to walk through life with us. God just didn't say about David before he ever became king and before this, this sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, 
God just didn't say before this, he was a man after my own heart. He actually says that in the New Testament, looking back at David. The New Testament looks at David as a great man of faith. It, it, the sin that comes into our lives when we repent of it, it, yes, it has its consequences, but it doesn't mean that God abandons us. God wants to walk with you in that forgiveness forward in life so that in his refining and purifying of you, even in that season of sin, Jesus can be seen in you and you can live in love like Jesus more and more. Verses 24 and 25 talk about David comforting and then it says Bathsheba. Notice the change. After his repentance, she's called Bathsheba. Before his repentance, she's called Uriah's wife. God is walking with him after the sin. There's grace in that. They conceive a child. God says, you're going to have a child. We're going to call that child beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. There's grace in that. You know, grace is God's goodness to us that we don't deserve. And we need, no matter if the sin was small, big, if it had huge consequences or small consequences, after repentance, we need to know that God is going to walk with us every day in his grace. And his goodness to us that we don't deserve. Jerry Bridges, the author, wrote, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. That's good to know on the bad days, right? But he also said, your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. We need God's grace as we go forward, even after the confession and repentance of sin. God graciously walks forward with us after sin. If you're someone who's just thought it's over and God will never forgive me, you need to receive the forgiveness of God, even with the consequences, and choose to take the next step forward in his grace because he's going to walk with you. He's not going to abandon you. Ninth, God's grace is greater than any and all sin. God's grace is greater than any and all sin. No matter what you have done, God's grace, mercy, and love are greater still. God's grace is still greater. No matter what you've done. I meet people who say, there's no way God could forgive me and make me his child. There's no way God could forgive me and walk with me in this life and then give me eternity with him in heaven. There's no way God can do that. Oh yes, there is. It's through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus died for every and all sin. There is no sin that was not covered by the blood of Jesus. We put our faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We put our faith in the one who died, was buried, and was raised for us. We are given new life because God's grace, his goodness, his love, his mercy is greater than any and all of our sin. And if Satan's been trying to convince you there's no way you can be a Christian, there's no way you can walk with God because of whatever that sin was a year ago, a decade ago, half a lifetime ago, that's baloney because God's grace is greater than all our sin. I want to urge you, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, just come to him and say, I get it. I'm a sinner. I missed the mark. I've crossed the boundaries. But I put my faith in Jesus who died, was buried, and was raised for me. And God, by his grace, will forgive you no matter what you've done and make you his child. Love to have a conversation with you after the service. I'll be in the lobby. Our Karen Purity movie down front. You can text us and we'll immediately respond to help you know that God's grace is greater than any sin in your life. God wants to have a relationship with you through Jesus. You can just text the name Jesus, just the name Jesus, to the number 58568, the number below me on the screen. We'll connect with you and help you know 
the forgiveness and grace that God's word talks about and God promises us. God's grace is greater than all our sin. Romans 5.20 says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. God's grace shines as it forgives our sins. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace actually empowers us and propels us into righteousness. H.A. Ironside said, grace is the very opposite of merit or good works. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give us, because of Jesus, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us the opposite of what we deserve. God's grace is greater than any and all sin. That's point nine. Point number 10. Point number 10. Point number 10 is this. God's grace is greater than any and all sin. You say, wait a minute, that was point number nine. Yes, that's the point of point number 10. No matter what you have done, God's grace, mercy, and love are still greater. Some of the people proofing this for the visuals and for the take notes said to me, I think you made a mistake. You've actually got nine points and you repeated it. No, I wanted to repeat it on purpose because throughout my pastoral ministry, I've met people who have sins in their lives and they say, this sin is greater than God's grace. No sin is greater than God's grace. No sin is greater than God's grace. It may have great consequences, but God can forgive it all. <laughs> Again, David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Verse 13, Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. The Lord has forgiven you. Please hear me if you're one of those who says it's over. I messed up. My marriage is gone, everything's over, I can do, it's just, God's grace is greater than your sin. Julia H. Johnston wrote hundreds of hymns in the first part of the 20th century. Got into all kinds of hymnals from different denominations, one of the most prolific hymn writers of the late 1800s, early 1900s. One word that appeared in the vast majority of her hymns was grace. One of those hymns has survived over the decades and been in many hymnals even to the day and still sung in churches all around the world. The title of that hymn is Grace That Is Greater Than All Our Sin. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. If you know that song, would you just sing it out? Just, we're just gonna sing that chorus that I just read that is available on the screen. Sing with Josh and me this song and be reminded of God's incredible grace. We sing. And grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within.
Taking God seriously means taking sin seriously. Taking sin seriously means taking God's grace seriously. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been working your heart. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. Our world is redefining good and bad. That's why we need to take sin seriously within the church. If we're going to see the culture change, it's the followers of Christ who need to live like Jesus, not just in our kindness, but in our holiness. If the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about a specific sin, maybe you've been hiding, would you confess that to him? Name it, acknowledge it, agree with God that it's sin. Begin to grieve over that, but then turn from it. Turn back to your relationship with God, with Jesus. Talk to God. Take sin seriously. Maybe right now, maybe a sin that just has been stirred up again in this message that goes back decades you've already repented of and asked forgiveness of, but you need to be reminded God's grace is still greater than any and all sin. Receive again the grace and forgiveness and love of God that's in Jesus. Thank God for the forgiveness. If you're confessing sin today and repenting of it, thank God for the grace that is greater than that sin that will propel you forward as you walk with him. Father, I pray for those who maybe say, oh, it's no big deal. Convict them. Help them to see the seriousness of their sin. I pray for those who maybe think it's all over. May they see your grace and take your grace seriously today. Our world needs to see people who reflect God. And Lord, you're using a fire to purify us, to refine us, to make us more like Jesus. Pray for those that are confessing and repenting of sin. May they now walk forward in your grace. I pray for those who needed a fresh reminder of your grace because of sin in the past. And may they embrace that grace again. That they might have freedom to walk forward in righteousness with you. Help us to take sin seriously, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.